0: Live from the Findlay Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios, this is the Press Box. Bitch-ass white boy, Tyler Bischoff.
1: It was reported that the Cleveland Indians have decided to remove the term Indian from their name. And Adam Candy. Yet we're cool calling the only black people in Utah the Jazz.
0: On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed
1: Grady out today though we will talk to him in about 30 minutes as he makes his way back from Denver so we got Adam Candy in instead and the Raiders are 1-0 and without John Gruden the first bite was John Gruden
2: holding back the Raiders
1: so here's a stat uh from the athletic Raiders yesterday set a season high not only in points scored but also in EPA per play and EPA per drive. So, Adam, are we are we counting this as addition by subtraction with John Gruden out of the picture now?
3: I can feel your tongue planted firmly within your cheek <laughs> uh, as you say that. Uh, Ew, there how? how can you feel it? Um, you don't want to know the answer to that. So, uh, the john gruden offense obviously had elements that we knew all along were a problem right the falling in love with josh jacobs the falling in love with the run period uh some of the field goal decisions that probably didn't really come into play some of the fourth down decisions that really didn't come into play um so yeah there there are things about greg olson that i think we were we were right to be happy about but the other piece of the the equation is The Raiders kind of went to the extreme the last two weeks, scoring 23 points over eight quarters before this game. This offense isn't that bad. This offense was never that bad. Uh, So you're you're kind of getting back onto a normal track with some normal regression for the Raiders. Uh, The John Gruden effect was clear last week on this team, I think you can say confidently at this point, in how they performed against the Bears. Uh, I'm not willing to say that it's completely because of the lack of him that we got this kind of showing against the Broncos.
1: Uh, do you make anything of this stat from Josh Hersmeyer, um, who tweeted the Raiders play action on their ran play action on just 10 percent of their dropbacks under Gruden. Their highest rate was in week five, 17 and a half percent. Their lowest was in week two at two and a half percent. The league average is 25 percent. And this week under Greg Olson calling plays, it was 27.6 percent.
3: It's fantastic, and we know what the benefit is league-wide in terms of play action, and the biggest thing is John Gruden comes from an era in which play action meant you had to first establish the run before you could use play action, and the more research that's been done on this, the more research that shows you don't have to do that. Uh, Play action works whether or not you, quote, establish the run first. So look at the time of possession yesterday. The Raiders only had the ball for 25 minutes. Uh, the turnovers uh, that they got obviously played a factor in their ability to score quickly, but overall, you don't have to establish the run when you only have the ball for 25 minutes, and that is something that's a huge departure from the Gruden era. Gruden always wanted to have the ball more, wanted to be able to, uh, you know, kind of grind it out in close games, and that was obviously not the case yesterday. What I thought was
1: interesting is is watching the game. Uh, my eye test was like, wow, this offensive line looks significantly better. Like this is a, a decent offensive line. They didn't do anything to really cost this team the game. And hey, the running game actually looked competent. And then you go look and it's like, well, Josh Jacobs had 16 carries for 53 yards. Like they didn't exactly run the ball well in that game. Like, maybe it's just because the bar was so low from the first five games, but I felt like the offensive line was better in that game. But then when I kind of look at it, it, it doesn't really have anything that indicates that it was actually good yesterday.
3: No, and and I said this before the game, that I thought that the Raiders in this particular game on the line were bad in the right spot. The run blocking has been abysmal, and the Denver Broncos are not good against the run. Uh, so, you know, it didn't really matter, I think, as much. Um, I think something else that's notable is that somehow, and we're going to have to watch closer going back to understand exactly what happened here, but if Derek Carr had 341 yards on only 18 completions, uh, there's something to be said here for their ability to consistently push the ball down the field uh, because that's something that they just were not doing consistently. Uh, even this year when it seemed like it was happening more, it really wasn't happening as much as it is elsewhere in the league.
1: Yeah. Like the the Derek Carr season has been fascinating because he looked better and more aggressive the first three weeks of the season. And then when the Raiders had their two game losing streak, there was a lot of Derek Carr in the pocket. Like we were used to seeing, you know, for the previous six, seven years of his career, but then yesterday, like the, the two throws that stick out to me were the two third down throws where the Broncos blitzed. And he gives Henry Ruggs a chance in one on one coverage to go up and make a play. Henry Ruggs goes up and makes the play. He gives Brian Edwards a chance to make a play in one on one coverage. And Brian Edwards makes a spectacular one handed grab down the sideline. Both of those third downs, pressure's coming because the Broncos are blitzing. And he's got, it's not an open receiver. Neither one of those guys was particularly open, but Carr still gave them a chance. We saw some of that in the first three weeks of the season, and that was sort of the big, like, oh, look at Derek Carr. He's giving his receivers a chance. He's staying in the pocket. He's not, you know, scared and running out of the pocket. He's not throwing it away at first sign of pressure. He was giving his receivers a shot, and he did that again yesterday. And so that's like, I I don't know if we're going to see that consistently the rest of the year, but that to me was like the optimism of Carr from that game was, okay, those are the types of throws you want to see him make throughout the rest of the season to give this offense a chance to make those plays down the field.
3: I would also keep something in mind about the Blitz in particular. The last couple of games, it wasn't about Derek Carr being blitzed; It was about the pressure getting home with four. Uh, Derek Carr against the Blitz this year has been pretty outstanding by the pro football focus grades. Uh, 89.4 grade, fifth in the league, under the blitz uh, when he's not been blitzed his grade goes to 74 so it suggests that Derek Carr actually has been welcoming of the blitz and the one-on-one matchups that it creates Uh, he leads the league in what pro football focus calls big time throws sort of the game changing throws with 10 of them under the blitz and his big time throw percentage in terms of what percentage of his blitzed passes are big time throws is also first in the league in front of Kyler Murray. So, you know, don't blitz Derek Carr <laughs> seems to be a pretty good lesson out of that as it backfired again on the Broncos.
1: All right, let me ask you this. And this was true going into this game, and it's even more true now. Henry Ruggs had the most receiving yards on the team for the entire season. He still does after yesterday. 445 yards. He's got more than Waller, who's at 378. Um, Can Henry Ruggs be the leading receiver on this team at the end of the year?
3: Leading receiver in terms of yardage? Yeah, it's possible because uh, when you're averaging better than 20 yards per catch, then that that certainly is within the realm. And we just talked about how much they've been pushing the ball down the field. Uh, You have a great stat here. Uh, It says Darren Waller hasn't broken 100 yards since week one. He clearly became the focus to take away for opposing teams. And so someone else had to step up. Uh, the one thing I think we could say very well for uh, the John Gruden offense and the uh, new Greg Olson offense is that they did a pretty good job of scheming rugs to get open. Uh, it hasn't just been on him to you know to find ways open down the field. They haven't really used him other than deep balls. Uh, they, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, He's uh, pretty much been exclusively down the field, and I think that's where the idea of John Gruden uh, getting his Tyreek Hill it uh, really hasn't evolved yet because Henry Ruggs isn't in that intermediate game right now, but could he be the leading receiver in terms of yardage? Yeah, if you keep throwing the ball down the field to him, sure.
1: I think it is interesting because Darren Waller, like you wouldn't say really he's necessarily had a bad game or even a bad season, but he had 105 yards in the first game of the year and it's, it's not even 100. He hasn't broken 70 yards in any game since week one, but... The low there is he had a four catch 45 yard game last week against Chicago. Like he's still been productive, but it's not really the Darren Waller. Oh, he's really your number one wide receiver guy, which is interesting because do the Raiders have a number one wide receiver if it's not Darren Waller and maybe Henry Ruggs because becomes that. And you mentioned other than the deep shots, we have Austin Gale on the show every week from pro football focus. Every time we ask him about Henry Ruggs, one of the main things he brings up is that at Alabama, he was not a deep threat. At Alabama, they threw him the ball on a slant or whatever within five yards of the line of scrimmage and let him do the work after the catch. And that's just something that's been non-existent since he's been with the Raiders.
3: And that goes you know, directly to the coaching staff. There's nothing more we can say about that. The confidence wasn't there in him last year to, to be in that role. Um I guess the question for the Raiders is if you don't use Henry Ruggs in that role, if you're not running him deep consistently, who are you running deep? Uh, Because last year it was Nelson Aguilar Uh, this year. We haven't really seen anybody else in that role. Correct. Like it's clearly not Hunter Renfro. Maybe a couple of times it's been Brian Edwards. Um, And you know, beyond that, you'd, you'd have to start looking to a guy like Zay Jones who they don't use. So, I almost wonder if it's pigeonholed a little bit based on what the Raiders offense has that you you don't really have much of a choice but to use him that way. Could you also use him in the intermediate game? Sure. You absolutely could. And it probably would help him uh, in terms of getting open deep as well. All right. Which
1: challenge by Vic Fangio was worse yesterday? He challenged Noah Fant's non-touchdown where his first foot was... Clearly out of bounds, and everybody saw it on the first replay that uh, CBS showed. But he also challenged Henry Rugg's third down catch uh, deep down the field inside the five yard line, where the ball never touched the ground. Which of those was worse by Vic Fangio?
3: Absolutely and unequivocally, the first one—the uh, Noah Fant non touchdown. Um, it is very rare that somehow. The first foot comes down out of bounds. The second foot comes down inbounds. And it was so clear that it was out of bounds that you thought to yourself, Vic, I don't know if you went temporarily blind or if the Jumbotron's not working, <laughs> but somehow you, you can't do this because there was no chance that that was getting overturned. The rugs one, it was such a desperation point in the game where you just take a shot that maybe they see something on the video that you know, wasn't super obvious like that. That one is something where the ball's down toward the ground. Maybe the replay has an angle that, you know, helps you out. The Noah Fayette thing. Hey, man, the whole world can <laughs> see that his foot's on the line. So, yeah, I, I, I can't see where you even think about that.
1: Okay. Do the Broncos have a replay guy? Like a, a guy solely responsible for, hey, challenge, no challenge. Like, do you, like changing sports here. But the first year of the Golden Knights, There were multiple stories done on the Golden Knights replay review guy because Gerard Gallant got like five straight challenges to start the season right. And everyone's like, well, who's telling you to challenge? And he's like, well, it's not me. Some other dude tells me. So, like, everyone's like, oh, the replay review guy. Do the Broncos not have that? Like, is Vic Fangio just out here challenging on feelings? He was was in his ear going,
2: Vic, don't do it. Don't. No, no. No, don't do it. And then he would challenge
3: it anyway. And so uh, the replay guy, air quotes, has become such a thing that – I know the name of the Yankees replay guy because they use it so often on the broadcast. His name is Brett Weber. Um, oh my god, so Adam. I have that's to think
2: that's the saddest thing uh, I've ever heard.
3: Oh, trust me, I could top that within five minutes like 3 or 4 times. But the replay guy for the Broncos, I have to assume that's the role that John Elway elevated himself to once he moved out of the general manager spot, right? Like he's no longer making the on-field decisions, but he really wants to still have a hand in it. And so he's in Vic's ear like, "Hey man, um you should probably go for this. By the way, I'm John Elway."
2: Yeah, well, uh, I've got a Toyota dealership. All right,
1: coming up next, we're going to jump into the Golden Knights because God, they got a lot of injuries. And is it time to start talking about how serious this is going to impact their playoff odds? Ed Graney is out today, but we will be talking to him in about 10 minutes. Uh, But we do want to spend some time on the Golden Knights. They've got quite a long break after their first two games of the season. They'll play again until Wednesday. But they've got a lot of injuries. Max Pacioretty has a fracture in his foot and could miss six weeks. We're talking about a month plus that Max Pacioretty could miss here at the beginning of the season. Mark Stone, who left the game, uh, their second game of the season, he is still being evaluated. They said he was day-to-day. That injury looked pretty bad, but I guess... Day-to-day means he could be back relatively soon, or it's the Golden Knights, and it could mean he's going to miss the entire season. Uh, Matthias Janmark, the last update from DeBoer over the weekend, was he's still on the COVID list. And then Brett Howden, Nick Waugh, and Will Carrier have not practiced with the team yet, but they have all resumed skating on their own. We've already seen the Golden Knights play three rookies on the fourth line in the second game of the season. If we're looking big picture here, how concerning are all these injuries for the Golden Knights' chances to make the playoffs, but probably more importantly, win the Pacific Division?
3: Well, we're going to find out quickly if we can believe the theory we had before the season that the Golden Knights are clearly the best team in a terrible division. Find that out pretty darn fast. Um, I have to be honest, Tyler, on opening night when I saw – the line rushes put out and I saw Dylan Coglin listed on the fourth line. <laughs> I thought to myself, how did we have a whole off season and we're right back here again? <laughs> like I understand that wasn't the intent in putting the roster together in the off season, but it, it sort of felt like groundhog day seeing, uh, seeing him in that spot on the fourth line when we know he came up as a defenseman. So uh, you know, I'm not that worried about it at this point. They've played two games. Uh, and this this team has still not even seen, like you said, guys like Yanmark haven't even really gotten a chance to to be in the lineup. We haven't seen what the Donoff uh, can do yet. So, you know, I don't think there's really any reason to panic two, yeah. in, or two two games in.
1: I'm curious, well, obviously who's available, but what on earth are their lines going to look like on Wednesday if Max Patch is obviously out, but if... Mark Stone doesn't come back for that game. If Matthias Janmark is still out because of the, he's on the COVID protocol list, and if that trio of Howden, Waugh, and Carrier still aren't back, like Dylan Coughlin might be like a third-line winger or a second-line winger by the time Wednesday gets here if none of these guys make it back in time.
3: Yeah, I think you can probably reasonably say that we'll see Peyton Krebs again, you know, if if that's the case. Right. Um, So you can start to look at that. I think you probably uh, if if Stone can't go, you're probably going to see the misfit line as the first line. And then you kind of mix and match from there. And the other thing is, I wouldn't necessarily feel too attached to anything I saw early in the game because Pete DeBoer has shown plenty of willingness as Golden Knights coach to mix up lines during the game. So it could be something where, you know, you're just trying to make it work till, uh, you know, till you have better choices. And I go back to the beginning of the Golden Knights when Marc-Andre Fleury was out, when we were trying to convince ourselves that Oscar Dansk was, you know, going to be good (laughs) enough for them to get through. And shocker, Oscar Dansk was good enough for them to get through for a while. So, yeah let's see what they can put together before we worry that much um it, I, but the patch thing um we had gotten to the point i think where we can fairly say that mark stone and max patch together had become one of the more reliable combinations uh i don't know you want to say in the division and league whatever you want to say um i think that's where it's going to be really interesting is when you have stone and theoretically stevenson who do you put on the wing because what we've seen is that you can take Patriaretti and Stone and you know throw a you know slightly trained 17-year-old between them and they'll probably have three points in a game. But when it comes to figuring out the wing, that's a different story just based on what we've seen with this team.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting because do you put a Peyton Krebs in that role? Is Stone good enough? Is Stone Stevenson a good enough combo to sort of pull Peyton Krebs along? Or do you go with, you know, Dodonov and play him or Stone, I guess, on their off wing because they're both right wingers, play one on their off wing and make sort of the best possible combination of talent you can put on that line? Yeah, I mean, it, it'll it be interesting to see how they handle Max Pacioretty for, you know, more than a month, almost two months here if he's out for six weeks, uh, how they handle that because, you know. It's like you said, they've been one of the best duos in the, I mean, you can say the league. I don't think that's much of a, I don't think that's much of a hot take to say one of their, their, uh, more reliable duos in the entire league. So I, it's, it's fascinating to me what we're going to see, because like you said, you see Dylan Coghlan in that first game playing as a winger. And you, you try to figure out how that happened. Well, they had a bunch of injuries to start the year slash Matthias Janmark on the COVID list. And then they were doing some salary cap, trying to get as close to the actual salary cap as they could because of the long-term IR implications. And then once that happened, Dylan Cogman was no longer playing on the wing. But now they've got even more injuries and we'll see who's healthy and available. But it's it's. I don't know that I blame the front office so much but it's it's funny that we had Kelly McCrimmon in the offseason say this is the deepest forward group we've ever had with the Golden Knights and in game 1 it's Dylan Coughlin not a forward playing on the fourth line.
3: Yeah, um I wanted to see how they shimmy and shake this thing and put it together because <laughs> you know I, I think what we can what we can safely say about the uh, the Golden Knights is that When they've been more of the roster that I think George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon envisioned, they've had two really good lines who can both be your first line. Um, I I guess if Mark Stone is healthy enough to be playing, that you can confidently say that he and Chandler Stevenson will be able to carry whoever you put with them. Um, But we don't know that. And Max Pacioretty, as, as much as I think there's some prior on all of us that still has a little bit of looking at season number one uh, in Vegas for Max Pacioretty and being like, eh, I don't know, you know 22 goals, 66 games. It wasn't that good. I mean, look, it, the guy had been pretty damn remarkable over his last, what, 129, 119, 119 games in Vegas. He had a total of 117 points. So, yeah, you know, point-per-game pace is pretty much what you ask out of anybody.
1: So here's what I needed to go look up for you. Year one, when Flurry was out, and then Subban also out at the same time. Max Legacy and Oscar Dansk. Uh, they their combined record that year: nine wins, seven losses, one overtime loss. That was the that was basically phenomenal for the Golden Knights. They were slightly better than five hundred when they had their third and fourth goalies having to play for them for an extended period of time. If the Golden Knights can hover around 500 for the next, I don't know, two weeks or something like that until they're back to full health or Sons, Max Pacioretty back to full health, then I think they're going to be fine. If it's anything significantly worse than that, I still think playoff-wise they'll be fine, but that's when sort of, oh, are they going to run away with the division becomes a big question mark.
3: Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And And if you're saying to yourself, well, you know, uh, the bat. They were backup goalies. They were in the league for a reason. Go, go, go! Find the rest of the stats on Max Legacy and uh, Oscar Dance in the NHL. You'll you'll be looking for a while. They, they, uh, see... they weren't
1: exactly backup NHL goalies.
3: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. <laughs> is uh, they they clearly were making it work uh, under some under some duress. And look, I, I'm I'm not going to take two games and extrapolate it into more than it is. I will say that uh, if you look at the stats thus far through two games, uh, Robin Leonard has the 38th safe percentage in the league. Uh, There are 46 goalies listed. Uh, And before you go killing Robin Leonard, know who number 46 out of 46 is? (laughs) Marc-Andre Fleury. Uh, So, you know, it's not to say that that's a, a solution to anything. I'm not saying that the last game in which the Kings put up six was on Robin Leonard. I think everyone agrees to that. That being said, Nine goals is nine goals. So the goaltending has to be good and pick up a little bit of the forward injury problems as well.
1: Oh, boy. Goals saved above average this year. Leonard 41st in the league. Fleury at 46th in the league. That's not good. That has not. Poor Mark andre Fleury. He got pulled in the first period of their game against Pittsburgh. Not good for Fleury. Not a good team he's playing with there. Coming up next, Ed Graney joins the show. Pitch from Scherzer.
0: Swinging a deep drive to right field, hit with tremendous force, tie game, home run, Jock Peterson. He just sent another pearl into the chop house, and it's two apiece here in the bottom of the fourth. In the 0-1 pitch, that shot through the right side and a base hit, Eddie Rosario digging around third, they're going to send him. Here's the throw from Souza, play at the plate, and he's safe. Ahead of the throw from Souza, swinging a fly ball deep left field, sprinting back there is Betts at the wall, over his head, off the base of the wall. Ozzie around third base. Here's the throw to the plate. Ozzie is safe, and a tie game. Austin Riley is amazing. Line drive that is through. It gets through. Here comes Dansby. Lightning strikes twice, and the Braves walk it off. This is in and they go up two nothing in the series
1: joining us now is ed graney good morning ed you think ed hung up the phone jared
3: likely
2: ed how are you doing hey what's up fellas how are you
1: good are you in the denver airport
2: Yes, and you'll hear that very soon as they announce Gates and tell us to put our masks on. Oh,
1: can't wait. So how are you feeling about about Jocktober?
2: It's tough. It's tough. I'm not feeling good about Doc Roberts at all. Uh, It was weird because I couldn't. uh, We were riding last night, so I kind of had to watch from the phone and get the wife updates uh, (laughs) and uh, was not happy with Urias in the eighth. I don't. I don't – Trinan to pitch the day before only one inning. I don't know why you just don't stay with Trinan and then Jance. I don't I don't get that. And it's – once again, I thought the doctor overthought the room, and you saw what happened.
1: <laughs> I need to know the wife updates. Are you making
2: her text you? No, she watches games. No, she texts me. She's like Urias in and the eighth, one man on. She's got it all there. You, you have to remember, she sat through like 12 years of travel softball, so she's pretty up on everything – more more so than me most of the time. So uh when Urias came in, she said, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Neither do I. And I'm sitting in a car um, leaving Denver and uh, I just see it goes four four and I'm like, Oh sure. And I had to be sitting with Case Keeper, who's a lifelong Braves fan, so that just made it even worse. Oh
1: brutal. All right. Uh on the Raiders here, you uh maybe more important than the game, talk to Mark Davis afterwards. Yeah. So your conversation with Mark Davis, I, I we saw the quote that you actually tweeted out from it, but what did you take away from talking to him?
2: Um, that he was happy for Candace Parker winning the WNBA title. Uh, <laughs> he was very happy with her winning that. Um, you know, he wasn't going to say much at all. He goes, oh, I don't want to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of gave us those quotes, and then, you know, that was it. And he kind of, you know, he had to go, and he went. So, you know, I thought for stopping, look, if he stops and talks and you, know, you're the only one there with you, you know, it's Vinny and I from the RD with Adam. And, so we liked that and uh that we were able to talk to him but i don't think he said anything besides the quotes you and i um and adam and others don't weren't surprised that i mean i don't know how far he's going to go down the road other than he didn't like the emails and that's why his coach is gone
3: so ed um we've now had what uh, we're we're pushing a, a solid nine days of not hearing anything about that situation, really, from from Mark Davis. You know, you, yeah. you got what you got, and obviously we, I think we, we all kind of thought that at some point, there would at least be a statement from the team, something like that. Um, where are you on what you think Mark Davis should or shouldn't be talking about at this point, not just what he is or isn't talking
2: about? Well, you know, I mean, as an owner, I think he should have held a press conference along with Mike Mayock or even instead of Mike Mayock. You could have still had Mike Mayock talk about the football partisans of in and, and but I thought he should have held and – Tyler and I were talking about this. I thought he should have held a press conference the day after um, Gruden resigned because Gruden did it late in the day, and we had availability the next day, uh, which was Mayock. Um, and I just thought he should have held a press conference. And, and you do it one time, and you hold your press conference, you answer your questions, and then – good for you and then you're the owner and then you move on um so i thought he waited too long you know obviously again we're glad to get what we got yesterday but i thought he should have answered all the questions I, i don't know you know i think there would have been a lot more questions about john gruden and his relationship with john gruden and the contract he gave him and how he felt when he hired him um we didn't have time to do that yesterday it wasn't allowable um but yeah i thought he should have held a press conference
1: uh, so brief interaction with him yesterday. Did you get the impression, though, that he blames the NFL for all of this?
2: We did. Well, the impression, no, but I think he does. I think he and we, you know, now we've read the stories over the weekend where they had the I think it was June or July. They had him, June or July. I don't think I'll leave it at this. I don't think it's over with him between him and the NFL. Um, I don't think that's over now. I do think if anything happens, we've seen the stories out there. Would he take legal action? I don't think that happens now. I think that might be happening after the season. I mean, They're four and two. I don't think he would – you know, they have an interim head coach. I don't think this would be the time he would think it's best. But I don't think he'll let it go either um, if he believes they held on to them and did not make them public and kind of messed with his team in the middle of a year. So I don't think it's over. I just don't think we'll hear anything till after the season because, again – I think he thinks you know they have a shot here. At least they have a shot. And if he thinks that, then I wouldn't do anything either. I mean, there's been enough done to this team in terms of you know upsetting the the card there with everything that's going on, than to do that stuff now.
3: Ed, when you look at how the Raiders played for John Gruden against the Bears, you look at how the Raiders played for Rich Passaccia against the Broncos. Uh, how much are we willing to assign to either game in terms of how much they didn't play or did play for their head coach?
2: Well, that's a great question. Here's the thing. I didn't I don't know if I believed in the moment when they said it didn't affect them against Chicago, but I think if you watched them yesterday, it affected them against Chicago. Like I don't think you can watch both games and say, Oh, that's the same team. I do think it affected them against Chicago and you saw it happen. I think yesterday it was all out there, he was gone and you know, I wasn't surprised at the effort yesterday because they're going to play hard the first game. I think it's more important how they play against Philly after the bye, like down the road. Even Besacchi said that. He goes, Well, the challenge is to remain consistent. Like yesterday, I wasn't surprised they played well or played hard for him. Um, and that's the other thing. You know, we've talked about it in the past on the show. The whole thing about playing hard, I always kind of laugh at because I think sitting in a press box and determining whether a guard or a tackle is playing hard is, is foolish. And, we hear that all the time from, like, you know, pundits and sports writers and everything, well, they didn't play yards. like, well, you don't really know. I mean, unless a guy gives up on a play, you know, 30 yards down the field and he gives up on it, that's one thing. Um, but I thought they played emotionally yesterday and inspired, and I don't think they did that against Chicago.
1: Who is happiest about Greg Olson calling plays today, Derek Carr, Henry Ruggs, or Kenyon Drake?
2: Joker. 11 million. <laughs> Joker showed up. He used the Joker. Good for him. He used a lot of people yesterday. And I and Fangio you know, Fangio and has both said it, and I do agree that, again, it goes back to how will they look against Philly now that they're on tape with him calling plays, and how will they look against the Giants and other teams. And Passaccio even said, he goes, look, we had a huge advantage. Like, they didn't know his tendencies. They didn't know, like, what he likes to call on certain plays. But now it's on film, so I think it's going to be tougher to do some of the things they did yesterday. They're going to have to adjust because people will now kind of see what he's about. But I think the Joker probably walked out of that stadium very happy yesterday, and I, and I think a lot of people were happy with the Joker because he, you know, he earned some of that money.
3: So this has been an unbelievable season to even try to talk about for so many different reasons. But here we are with the Raiders having played six games; they're somehow tied for first place in this division. Um, yeah, they they are four and two with a reasonable chance to make the playoffs. It, it kind of feels like, even though the schedule is going to get pretty brutal over the back half, that if you just look at it right here and right now, you, you have to feel like this team has gotten pretty much the most out of what it has on this roster, don't you?
2: Yeah, and maybe in some instances a little more, given how bad the offensive line's been. Uh, and to be 4 and 2 with that offensive line, uh, I agree with you. I, I don't, yeah, if you sit here right now, and that goes back to Davis and what he might do with the NFL. I just don't think anyone wants to upset anything right now. I mean, once in 17 or 18 years, you made the playoffs. If you have any kind of feeling within that you can make it, you're right. I think they just kind of stay the course and try to keep getting better. And hopefully that how they played yesterday is more indicative of how they played against the bears of who they are. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's a chance that they can make the playoffs. Like you said, they haven't played Kansas city yet. They haven't played Dallas. I mean, there's games out there where, you know, they're going to be, you know, underdogs, uh, but I agree with you. I think that in their in their minds right now, there's no question they can make the playoffs.
1: Is Vic Fangio the worst challenger in the NFL?
2: He might be. Although, did you see the Basaccia challenge?
1: Yes. It okay, wasn't, wasn't so great
2: either. I think the official went over and tried to help the interim coach and said, ah, you don't want to do this. But I think he wanted to throw <laughs> that flag so badly that he just threw it. Because um, uh, we were already headed down. But I talked to people who saw it. Maybe you can help me. That he just wanted to throw it, just like he wanted to figure out how to use the headset, which he didn't know how to use the headset. Afterwards, he said that was his biggest problem of the day because he didn't know what button to push. <laughs> um, which, which is actually, it was a great line. He goes, "You got to push a button to talk. You got to push a button to burp. You got to push a button here." He goes, I never had so many buttons, <laughs> but I do think Fangio's really bad to waste both timeouts on that. But Besacchia, from what I heard, was just really happy to be able to throw the red flag.
1: Uh, to give you insight to the, uh, I can't remember which rules expert it was, but they brought on the rules expert, and at one point he said, "I think both of these coaches just want to work the system and make sure
2: they're doing it right." Yeah, I totally believe that about Besacchia. <laughs> I think Basaccia felt being a head coach, he had to throw it like it was like part of the rules. Like if you're the head coach, you must throw the red flag, um, which I thought was great. Uh, but I also thought, I also thought, as he should have. I thought he stayed out of the way for the most part and just let his coordinators run the game. And he probably should have done that. Like and then he said that. Like he kinda I think he had a little input a couple times with Olsen, but he just kinda let them run the game. And I think for the you know, I think that's what he'll do as a head coach. I mean, I don't think he's gonna be a guy taught in talking to him where he's gonna be like, you know, kind of a dictator guy going and say, We're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. I think he's just gonna let those guys do their jobs and he's probably better off that way, you know, concentrating on the special teams and maybe have some input. But I think he's better off coaching the way he did yesterday. I was happy for him. He's a cool guy. He's, again, 40 years of the profession, um, never been head coach. I mean, it was cool seeing him win. And afterwards, he was really complimentary of everyone. He said, it's not about me. Uh, So it was kind of cool to see him win because just talking to him, he seems like a cool guy.
1: All right, Ed, before we let you go, how early did you get to the airport?
2: Well, two things. So it's on my side of things. Kevin Bollinger had an earlier flight, and Denver's obviously just usually a complete swarming joke on Monday. So he texted me, because goes, you better get here. Even the TSA line's like 45 minutes. So I left early, but I also knew I'd talk to you guys, so I had to get through that weird security. So I probably got here an hour and 40 before the flight, which is usually pretty good for me. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. That's much no, less that's than I was
1: expecting. All. Okay, Ed great
2: I can't believe you didn't ask me about the uh, the slot machine with UNLV. What do you think?
1: Oh, it's the best thing Marcus Arroyo's done. I
2: I totally agree. I totally agree. The Thought highlight of
3: awesome. the last two years. It's phenomenal. All right, it's I, a more yeah. It's a moral victory.
2: <laughs> I I yeah. just I wanted to ask him about the Marriott, uh, Airport Marriott. Very solid. Um, you know, still still st- closed for food because of COVID. They've had a spike here, so the so the mask is on. Uh, but yeah, very solid. <laughs>
1: All right, Ed, He's get right, out of Greg. here. Ed Grady, he'll be back Talk on the show tomorrow. Right. Thanks, Ed. All right, coming <laughs> up next, we'll get back into the NFL. And, oh, Joe Judge, best coach in the league. The only one can make an impact to change anything that
0: we're doing are all the men in that room. So we're in that submarine right now, all right? If something happens wrong in that submarine, it has got to be someone on that ship to step up and save that thing, right? You spring a leak, someone's got to plug that thing for you. No one's coming. No one can get there in time to help you if you don't fix it yourselves.
1: Adam, is anybody coming to save the Giants submarine?
3: One ping only, Joe Judge. One ping only. And I know you won't get that reference. Title, no idea. But a lot of people will. Um, no, no. Um, if you're wondering about the New York Giants and, and Joe Judge, um, I'll give you this stat from, uh, from Shiel Kapadia of the athletic uh, over the last five years, the New York Giants are 19-51. and 51. Uh, They have the worst winning percentage in football during that time. So no one is coming to save any of us from Dave Gettleman or Joe Judge.
1: What about Joe Judge saying there's a lot of ball left to be played? Our goal every week is to be 1-0. Um,
3: my goal every week is to be a millionaire. It doesn't really <laughs> always work out that way. I mean, good for you. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of ball left to be played. A lot of bad ball. Uh, They were down 38 to three before that garbage touchdown. And oh, thank God they went for the two point conversion, uh, made it 38 (laughs) to 11. But no, this team is cooked. They're probably going to start trading pieces before too long here because the Dallas Cowboys clearly are for real. The Giants are four games back. Of the Dallas Cowboys. So, uh, you know, th- there's no hope left for this team this year. There probably wasn't much to start the season.
1: Okay, hold on. What, so what's the what's the course of action for the Giants? Like, they've been awful for five years. worst in the league. Uh, like, w- what are you optimistic about? What should they be trying to accomplish? Win in terms sprints. Of when are they going to be good at this sport?
3: Y'all think I get on here and yell about Dave Gettleman because it's a bit or because <laughs> it makes me feel better. Um, it's not a bit, and sadly, it doesn't make me feel better. It's kind of like getting really, really, really angry and knowing that if you let it out on someone, it's going to feel terrible in the end, but in the moment, you just got to release something. That's me yelling about Dave Gettleman. But if the Giants don't change their general manager, then they have no chance of moving forward with any sort of real uh, success plan because Dave Gettleman has proved repeatedly that his ideas about building a football team are not going to get the Giants anywhere. They have picked three times in the top six. And for that, they have to show Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones, and Andrew Thomas. And Andrew Thomas, the offensive lineman, is probably the best bet to become a long-term NFL player out of those. So, yeah, you wasted the number two pick on a running back. You took a quarterback at number six that nobody truly believed in. And I think it's just about time for the Giants to to clean house. I can't imagine how their ownership would look at it and feel any way but that.
1: Is... uh... Is Gettleman, like, on a hot seat? Like, is there conversations about him getting fired?
3: Yes. Okay. The Giants ownership said before the season they expected to make the playoffs this okay. year. Um, I'm not sure which playoffs. <laughs> um, but, the uh, yeah, it's Yeah, it's clearly not going to be the NFL playoffs.
1: All right. You mentioned the Cowboys and somehow six weeks in already being uh, four games ahead of the Giants. That's because the Cowboys are five and one. They beat the Patriots in overtime. I know last uh, last time we had you on the show, I asked you about your tiers in the NFC. Are you putting the Cowboys in the top tier of the NFC?
3: No, because I think the top tier of the NFC remains Tampa Bay alone. Uh, but if there's a second tier that we can throw the Cowboys on in there, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, the Cowboys and the Cardinals are probably that second tier here at the moment. Um, Rams! Look, what else can you say? Uh, I, I'll... I I have issues with the Rams that uh, that that are kind of put them in the back half of that tier. Um, The Dallas Cowboys put up a ridiculous amount of offense again yesterday, another 500 plus yards. The only reason that game went to overtime is because Dak Prescott had a ball knocked out diving over the goal line uh, on fourth down. Like the the Cowboys moved the ball up and down the field in the Patriots all day long and really should have won that game with a lot more ease. But, you know. Ultimately, they're going to be held back by a couple of things. The defense is improved, but not great. And their head coach is named Mike McCarthy.
1: (sighs) All right. Before the Mike McCarthy thing here, defensively through six weeks, the Cowboys are sixth in the league in EPA per play. Do I expect the Cowboys to finish the year as the sixth best defense? No. But even if they regress and they stay around 12, 13, 14th best defense in the league, with their offense, that's, a to me, a, a team that has a legitimate shot to win in the playoffs, win the NFC this year. Now, yeah, yeah. Y- you mentioned Mike McCarthy, and that's probably the reason to think they don't have a legitimate shot, because even though they won yesterday, uh, he's still, what was it, fourth and two? And he kicks the 51-yard field goal that's missed uh, when his team's losing with about 240 to go, and he gets bailed out because Trayvon Diggs can't stop intercepting passes.
3: No, no, it's compulsive for him. Um, so... I took a screenshot of my Twitter timeline right when that happened. Bill Barnwell, Bill Simmons, George Shahuri, Timo Risky, Buster Olney, and John Murray uh, from the Westgate <laughs> Superbook, all basically saying, Mike McCarthy, no, what are you doing? It filled my entire screen. Wait, uh, Buster Olney Joy did? Buster Olney Joy did. That's why I thought it was the best of the whole thing. Like, here comes the baseball writer to tell us how bad the field goal decision was uh, by Mike McCarthy, which had nothing to do with whether it was made or not. Anyway, uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the Cowboys, I think if you are a Raiders fan, you probably have to look at the Cowboys and say, "This is what we want to be when we grow up." Right? Like you are trying to get to the point where this offense takes another step or two forward, and your defense just kind of hangs out in that middle range, and that's what you are shooting for. Now, you know the Cowboys have more talent on offense in part because. God, they have this this really good receiver who caught the uh, winning touchdown pass yesterday, Tyler. Why can't the Raiders get guys like that? Henry Ruggs can dress up like CeeDee Lamb for Halloween.